the Gospel of Mark this morning. Mark chapter 3, verse 17. I know that's this one verse. Uh, that's the main verse that we'll be looking at this morning. We're going to look at a few other places as well as we follow a couple of characters around through uh, a chunk of the New Testament. Uh, so the main, uh, the main scripture, if you want to go ahead and look it up, is Mark chapter 3, again, verse 17. Let's begin with a word of prayer, though. <clears throat> Father, right now, I just pray that you would take over these next few moments. God, I pray that you would quiet our hearts and our minds so that we might focus on what your spirit wants to communicate to us today. God, I pray that you would grant me the gift of communicating, preaching the word that you would have heard and applied in the lives of all of us this morning. God, again, we ask that you reign supreme and teach us as you would teach us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're at the conclusion of our first series of the year, uh, New Year, New Name, looking at people in Scripture that had been given new names either by God or someone else, or in Paul's case, uh, given not necessarily a new name, but just started going by a name that he was already called, and, and kind of the way that that is metaphorical in Scripture of God working a change in someone's life, or a new way of being in someone's life. We look at, at, at Jacob becoming Israel and the ultimate change that that was of, of him going from a conniver, a swindler, a finagler to one who strives with God, uh, to one that God would use to work out his will not only in that day but in every day since then through the people of Israel. Uh, we looked at, again, Paul, uh, or Saul, who became known, who became known as Paul, uh, the, the, the missionary to the Gentiles, who, who gave up, essentially, that Jewish name, Saul, even though it was a bigger, uh, more, more manly name, and went instead with Paul, that means a little guy, because he believed that that was God called him to be, to be all things to all people, so that by all means he might win more to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we looked at Daniel <clears throat> last week, who became known as Belteshazzar, as he was named by King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, and instead of resenting the fact that Nebuchadnezzar changed his name from one that honored God to one that honored some Babylonian God, Daniel found a way to walk that fine line of honoring God while also being a productive member of society, to honor God first and then to change the world in that order. And today we're going to end it with two people. Two people who have one common nickname, and that is the Sons of Thunder. And we'll get to the scripture here in just a little bit. Uh, this is a nickname for a couple of disciples that Jesus had. But before we actually get there, as we think about this whole idea of change, uh, of something new and something different, and God doing a work in our lives that is not only just kind of a, of a difference, a little bit of a difference, but a, a big change, like, like a, a complete 180 in some aspects that we've looked at, or at least a 90 degree turn, where God works a, a significant change in our lives. We, we talk about this and we read this in scripture and perhaps we read it other places where we see stories of change and we read it through our cultural eyes and a lot of times in our world today, many people would think that change, or should I say someone changing, an adult particularly, changing in a significant manner is simply impossible, that it doesn't happen. Some people would think that change 
people don't really change, you might have heard people say, or people don't really change, they just become more of who they already are, or people don't really change, they just don't know how to lie better. These are some cynical kind of lines that we would hear in our world today that nobody is really different, that you might have a husband or a wife that keeps messing up or doing things you don't want them to do, and they'll say, baby, I'll change this time, and then of course they don't change. That allows us to be cynical about that, or we see a criminal that's in and out of jail or in and out of trouble with the law, and we think that eventually they will be changed, they will be transformed, but they just keep working that same path over and over again. We even see it in groups of people or in families, sometimes even today, where we see one child repeat the father or the mother's mistakes, and we wonder, can anything really change? Can people really change? Cheryl and I are trying to answer that question in a very kind of surface level way. Uh, Both of us, uh, we've done the stereotypical thing. Uh, We didn't start at the new year, uh, but we are trying to lose weight in 2017. We've been working on that. We've been going through some dieting. It's not the first time that we've done this. And and so we are dealing with, I am dealing with that constant reminder, oh, here you go again. You're doing this again. You're trying to help yourself in this manner again. It didn't work last time, or maybe it did for a while, but then it ended up not working long term. So can it really work this time, right now, it's working, but there's still that voice in my head that would say, can anyone, can you really change? My argument for you this morning is that with the Holy Spirit, that's important, with the Holy Spirit, change is not only possible, it's inevitable. Another way to put it, change cannot only happen, there is no way to escape it if we actually encounter the Holy Spirit. This morning, again, we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark to start off with. Mark chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, And it's just a a quick verse uh, to kind of highlight one, uh, two people that I want to highlight. But in the midst of this verse, uh, Jesus is in the midst of calling his disciples together. um, And we see James and John, the brothers, uh, sons of Zebedee, a fisherman, uh, called by Jesus in this aspect. And we also get to see the wonderful nickname that Jesus gave them that will be what we focus on this morning. Again, Mark chapter 3, verse 17. I'm going to back up to verse 16 just to give you some reminder, but 17 is going to be the only one that's on the screen. He appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Now, if you were here with us a couple of weeks ago, I thought the name Rufus was cool, but there's not much more cool than the Sons of Thunder. What a great name, right? You don't get that name by accident. Uh, There had to be something about these two individuals to give them that name. It appears to be, whereas it differentiates from the last several weeks that we've looked at, this appears to be more of an honest-to-goodness nickname that Jesus gave them. Now, he changes Peter's name in the scripture right before this one, but with these two, it seems to be a nickname because we don't see him use this very often. As a matter of fact, if if you have a concordance and you go and you look up that Boanerges, this is the only time it shows up. This is the only time these guys are called the sons of thunder. We call them James and John throughout the rest of scripture. We also know that these disciples, uh, while they are 12, uh, of the 12 apostles, that makes them important enough, but we also know they're involved even more deeply in Jesus' story because they're a member of Jesus' inner circle, along with Peter. Uh, inner circle, that means they were there at some of Jesus' biggest moments when he's uh, raising a girl from the dead, when he is uh, uh, transfigured before their eyes, when he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray to ask Jesus, or to ask God to allow the cup of crucifixion to pass from him. These are the 
three that go with him. So they make up two-thirds of the inner circle. We know that there was something important about these guys. But again, you don't get the name Sons of Thunder for no reason. You probably had nicknames, some of you, growing up. Maybe some of them were really awesome. Maybe you still have a nickname. Maybe some of them were really awesome. Maybe some of them weren't. Uh, I had one cool one that I got called one time by a pastor of mine while I was on a basketball court. I know I don't look like your stereotypical basketball player, uh, but I had fun a lot when I was in high school and, and, and just kind of a, a football player on a basketball court. You know how that goes. Um, but anyway, I had, a, I had a, a pastor of mine, a good friend of mine still today, call me one time, Scory Scornut. Now that's perfect, right? Scory, like you score baskets. Scory Scornut, that's the perfect name that I've ever had. Um, and so I've been given other nicknames uh, throughout my life, some that I'm not going to tell you about because I don't want you using them. That might be a little embarrassing, but perhaps you've also been given nicknames. Again, some are for positive reasons, but in many cases, especially when we're younger, some are given for negative reasons. And even though this name, Sons of Thunder, sounds really fun, it sounds pretty awesome. It sounds, uh, I put it, the, the title, or I put who I was talking about on Facebook yesterday, and someone commented back with a question mark, uh, is this a motorcycle club? That's kind of what it sounds like, right? But in the case of Scripture, I doubt this name was positive. Because when you really think about it, thunder seems to indicate someone who just makes a lot of noise, someone who rundle, rumbles in the distance, You know when you have a thunderstorm, it's one of those really uh, electrical, big-time electrical storms, and there's lightning all the time. There's just that constant sound of thunder, and it's not the thunder that does the work. It's not the thunder that does the power. It's the lightning that has the power. The thunder is just the rumbling afterwards. I don't think this was a positive name necessarily. And we kind of seen that borne out in these individuals, in James and John. They were a little bit impetuous, impatient, selfish, And I have scripture to back that up. Luke chapter 9, verses 52 through 56, we see perhaps one of the more revealing and one of the more just honest passages about any of the disciples in this this scripture. Again, Luke 9, 52 through 56. And he, being Jesus, sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when the disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Sons of thunder, indeed. Jesus tries to go into one of the villages of Samaritans. They reject Jesus because he knows that he's headed towards Jerusalem. And it could also be kind of metaphorically saying because he is a Jew, as a Samaritan, they don't want anything to do with him. And the sons of thunder, James and John, their, their response is very easy. God, Jesus, we can take care of this very quickly. Can we just call fire down from heaven and consume these horrible people that dishonored you and disrespected you? Again, it's a quick solution, but it's also very extreme. And not only do we see them with this kind of impetuous impatienceness towards other people, they also kind of have this selfishness, uh, even this impatience with even Jesus. And we see it in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 37. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Now that's bad enough. 
right, that they're wanting Jesus to give them priority over everybody else. You can see them thinking, we are two members of the inner circle. It's uh, us and Peter, and so we better ask for this before Peter gets it. So we're going to ask Jesus first, Jesus, will you give us whatever we want? Have you ever had anybody come up to you? That happens with Corbin sometimes with children, right? They'll come up to you and they'll say, can you do something for me? And what do you, what do you think in your head? I want to know what that something is, right? I don't just want some broad, they come up and ask, can you do whatever we want you to do? And that's what they ask of Jesus. But not only that, if you back up and you see what Jesus is actually talking about in the scripture before that, he says that he is going to go up to Jerusalem, that the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn him to death to deliver him to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And according to here in the Gospel of Mark, after Jesus has said he's going to go to Jerusalem, be mocked and killed by Gentiles and Jew alike, and that three days later he will rise, their first response is to go to Jesus and say, hey, that's wonderful, that kind of sounds scary, but can we sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom when you come to power? That's what they're worried about. We know that the other disciples get upset with them because of that, and we can certainly understand why. We kind of also see this impetuousness and selfishness and maybe even cowardice in the fact that elsewhere in the Gospels when this story is talked about, it's actually their mother that comes and asks the question on their behalf of Jesus. They were impetuous. They were fishermen, after all. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, it kind of fit that character to be men of the, of the, of the earth in that respect, or of the sea, I guess, uh, but kind of uh, men who, who were out with just guys all of the time, and you just kind of expected to have that kind of rough personality, much like I would assume fishermen who are out on the water all the time in, in this world today are the same. In short, they deserved their nickname, Sons of Thunder. You know these kind of people, They start out well-meaning, but then their own impatience, selfishness, and impetuousness get the best of them. You know these kind of people. Maybe, just maybe, some of you in the room are these kind of people. And you don't expect these kind of people to actually change, to become different for God to work some transformation in their life. Those who are go, go, go all the time, I want, I want, I want, they're pushing, pushing, pushing for their own wealth, for their own betterment. You kind of think a lot of times, especially if you encounter them in the church, you kind of just assume they're gonna stay that way forever because people don't change. But James and John did. In Acts chapter 12, verses one through two, a scripture that often uh, gets overlooked about the 12 apostles we see the fate of James. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of, the, of John, with the sword. Now, James is not the first Christian martyr Stephen was in Acts uh, chapter 6, but here we have Acts 7, sorry, Acts chapter 7. Here we have, in this case, we have James become, become the first of the 12 to be killed. He is the first of the apostles to be martyred. And so this man who wanted more than anyone else, who wanted to sit at the right hand of God the Father, wanted to sit at the right hand of Jesus when Jesus came into power, into the ultimate kingdom, now he is the first one willing to step up to the plate to be martyred, putting himself in that situation. We don't know exactly what happened, but we do know that like all of the other apostles, they did this because they were following God, because they believed that they needed to stick to the truth of the gospel of Jesus, regardless of what other people were telling them to do. And perhaps the more uh, amazing change we see wrought in John, 
who James becomes the first Christian martyr. John, he, he becomes the, the last probably of the 12 to die on the island of Patmos after he receives the vision of Revelation, not actually dying a true martyr's death, but dying while he has been cast away by the government, by the powers that be. And so we see his transformation in his epistles. If you see that kind of impetuousness, that kind of selfishness that you see of the apostles and the gospels that I just read, you wouldn't think that that actually belongs to the same person that wrote the book of 1 John. Yet we believe that it certainly is. Because John, 1 John in particular, uh, is known as, as, as a loving letter, as a letter of tenderness. He calls the people to whom he is writing, oh, little children. He calls them that several times throughout the epistles of John. And he says some of the more memorable and famous words about love in the book of 1 John. I'm just going to read a few verses from 1 John chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. As John, again, John, a son of thunder, writes these words. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he, ha- whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John, one of the members of the Sons of Thunder, who was willing, along with his brother, to put his needs above everyone else. Jesus, will you honor us? Will you allow us to be the second and third in command when you come into power, ends up being the disciple of love, as we often know him to be? The one that at the Last Supper reclined on Jesus, according to the book of the gospel that John wrote, reclined on his chest. This loving, calm individual who became the leader of a Christian community to whom he's writing in the epistles of John and spoke with them in this love and in this tenderness and even went so far as to say if someone says they love God but they don't love their brother, they're lying. Going so far as to say that to truly love God shows in the way we love other people. This man who said, I want before anybody else gets, I want, now says, that to truly love is to love others. They went from brash, selfish children to brave, loving disciples. So what changed the sons of thunder? What changed them into someone who was willing to give their life literally for Christ? What changed them to someone who was willing to give their life lampooned on an island for Christ and also write about the truth of God's love and how that bears out in the way we treat one another? What changed these individuals? The same thing that changed Peter. The same thing that changed Jacob. The same thing that changed any other person in the scriptures that had been changed. They had followed Christ. They had encountered God and his Holy Spirit, and they were learning to obey him. Simply put, the thing that changed them was being in the presence of God, being in the presence of Christ. To experience the presence of Jesus and not change is unthinkable in scripture. To actually be in the presence of God and to remain the same does not happen in the Bible. There is a change when someone encounters God. Many times in the Old Testament, there is actually a physical change when someone encounters God. Think of it. Think of Moses coming down from the mountain after meeting with God and glowing. 
or growing older simply by being in the presence of God, to be in the presence of Jesus, to be in the presence of the Holy Spirit and not change does not happen biblically. So full circle with this series. When we began at the beginning, I talked with a bit of cynicism about New Year's resolutions. Cynicism that we have in this world. We present them as a lost cause, and I even kind of laughed about it. If you remember, I asked those of you who have started a New Year's resolution and two weeks in have already failed that it raised your hand because that's just what we assume will happen in our world today. We don't think that the power to actually change, to actually transform our lives, to be going down one path and choose another, we don't think anymore in this world, sometimes even in our churches, that that power actually exists. Because why? We've tried to change, many of us. We've tried to change and we've failed. Maybe we've succeeded for six, nine months, maybe even a year or longer, but eventually we fall back into those old habits. Some of you who have those bad habits that you've been trying to kick, whether it's some powerful addiction to a substance or whether it's just some behavior you want to correct, you've been there. You know what I'm talking about. Where you think, I'm not going to do this anymore. You make that decision to yourself and then eventually somewhere down the road, maybe it's the next day in some cases, maybe it's years later in other cases, you find yourself doing that thing again and you think to yourself, I'm never going to change. Why even bother? That is the cynicism that we have speaking within us, speaking to us from our world. So is change really possible? Can people really change? Can you change? To give you the answer to that question, I have to answer with two words. No, yes. It is a little bit of both. Because the power to change is not found within you. That power comes from above. We all have parts of ourselves we want to change, and many of ourselves have resigned to the fact, have been and come resigned to the fact that those changes are only dreams. But that's not because those changes are impossible. That's because we have tried to work those changes through our own power. Think about it. In Scripture, in Romans 12, Paul does not tell us to transform our minds. Paul tells us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. It's a passive thing, as if something happens to us. The Bible does not say to save yourself, to find some way out of this mess. No, the Bible says to be saved, to be baptized, to be cleansed and made new, as if it is happening to you, because it's not an as if thing. It is actually something that happens to you, something that some outside force works upon you. And that's the change and transformation that the scriptures speak of. James and John were impetuous, selfish fishermen who were loud and probably annoying, people you didn't want to be around, people who probably laughed you know, about crude jokes and all of those things that those kind of folks usually do. And somehow they became known as the first Christian apostle to give his life for the cause and also as the apostle of love who wrote some of the New Testament, my favorite book in the New Testament, the Gospel of John. It is these individuals who, wrote, who had this huge change in their lives and that would not have happened, that would have been impossible without the presence of Jesus Christ in their lives. God is the sole actor in every part of our salvation story. In every part of our salvation story. 
We see that very clearly, and we all believe and proclaim that God is the sole actor in our justification. That's the big word for that moment of conversion where we say to Jesus, not my will, but yours, please save me. I'm unable to save myself. We all see God's work in that because it's very clearly explained in the Gospels and the crucifixion of Jesus where he lays down his life for our sake. We also see it at the end, another big word, we call it glorification, when our bodies are taken from, or when our souls are taken from this life into the next, and we are made new, given new bodies, given, given perfection, given eternity with Jesus. We see that happen in Scripture, and again, we can easily say, of course, that's all God, but it's the middle part that's the tough part. And again, the big Christian word for that is sanctification. That's still part of God's salvation, where God works in us every day to look more like Jesus than we did the day before. Here's the problem with that, especially in the Baptist world. We see God's hand clearly in becoming saved in the conversion. We see God's hand clearly in going to heaven and being taken up from this life into the next, but we often think the middle part is up to who? Us. Me. If I will just do more, if I will just be a better church member, love Jesus more, if I will just commit more memory to Scripture, if I will just be a better husband or a better father or a better mother or a better wife or a better society member or a better class or a better student or whatever it might be, if I will just work harder, if I will just do more, if I will just set more goals, if I will just push myself and know that I can do this, if I'll read self-help books and even from a Christian perspective about how I can be the best me today that I've ever been and I will push forward and believe in myself because that's what scripture, that's what culture teaches us, not scripture. Believe in myself and go forward with this sense of, of, of endurance and with this sense of courage. If I will just do that, then I will change. And maybe we do for a minute and then we fail and then we feel miserable and then we think to ourselves I'm not good enough in a way we're right we're not but God is and he is the sole actor in every part of our salvation story God not only makes you right before Jesus in order to be saved the Holy Spirit not only cleanses you of sin the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is with us in every moment of every day, seeking to transform us into looking more like the person of Christ than we did the moment before. Every moment, every part of growth that you've had as an individual in your life has come from the Holy Spirit. And so today, can you really change? Not on your own, you can't. But can transformation really happen? Yes, it can. Yes, it can. And if you have a relationship with God, I don't believe it. It's an only yes, it can. It's a yes, it will. Yes, it will if you are surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you are surrendered to the power of Christ to work a transformation in your life. Change not only can happen, change will happen. And it's not nearly as difficult as we make it to be. It's not nearly as difficult as it often comes out being because we get so much in our heads about it and we leave it up to ourselves. <clears throat> Decide now that you want to change. That's where we start. Now, I'm not going to let this be a part of my life. Even the way I talk about it bears uh, what, I'm, what I'm lamenting against in our world today. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. God, decide now. God, don't let this be in my life anymore. Take this 
from me. Decide now that this is going to be the time where you lay that bad habit down. Decide now that this is going to be the time when you start whatever God is calling you towards. Decide now and then lean on God. Lean on God, not your own ability. Lean on God. It's not going to happen without a transformation. It's not going to happen without the presence of Jesus Christ. And if you really want to see change worked in your life, and you need to be in that presence through scripture reading. I'm not talking about being legalistic about it, but through scripture reading, through prayer, through worship, through being in the spiritual life of having the Holy Spirit live in you and be surrounding you with with music and with words and reading and prayer and all of the things that we do to submerse ourselves into the person of God. Lean on God and finally lean on God's people. Find somebody that you trust to keep you accountable. Find somebody that you trust to ask you the difficult questions. Find somebody that you trust that you're telling, I want God to work this change in my life. Will you help me? Will you pray for me? Pray with me. See what I'm doing wrong and correct me. Decide now. Don't wait. If you need, if you know this change is needed in your life, don't wait for it any longer. Take this matter to God today, even right now. Lean on him. Know that the power comes from him. Ask him to do the work and be in his presence and lean on God's people. Again, change might seem impossible from a human perspective, but with the Holy Spirit, change is not only possible, it is inevitable. I believe Paul echoes these sentiments in Romans 7 and 8 as he moves from one chapter into the next. And when after reflecting upon his own fallenness and inability to do what he wants to do, he writes these words, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That scripture says it better than I ever could. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If there's something you want to be free from, if there's a change you want to see wrought in your life, whether it's a new year change or it's something else, I'm here to tell you today, that though the world may look at such a statement and think I'm being overly optimistic, that I'm being ignorant of the reality of the way things are, that I believe change, transformation in a human being, even in the oldest among us, is not only possible, with the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, it's inevitable. It's inescapable. And if you, church family, would decide now. This is the time for change. Lean on God, not your own understanding, and find others to walk this path with you. It might not happen the way you want it to. It might not happen as quickly as you want it to. But to encounter the Holy Spirit is to change. God can bring change and transformation in your life, starting today. It's not a fairy tale. It is the truth of Scripture, 
testified by the Holy Spirit even today. It's not too optimistic. It can and will happen if you follow. During our time of invitation this morning, I want you to consider in what areas you might want Christ to work change, the Holy Spirit of Christ to work change in your life. Maybe begin praying about that right now. To surrender that would be the first thing, to surrender that to Christ, to say, God, no more. I want you to work this in my life. And then allow God to begin putting other people in your mind that perhaps you can get to walk the path with you. Do that during this time of invitation. And if you need to pray about that or anything else, I'm down here to do that this morning during our time of invitation, as well as after the service, if you would like to find me in in a more private moment. But let's stand together. We're going to be led in a song of invitation, and then you move in whatever way God is calling. Father, once again, we thank you for this moment. For the moment we have as a body to encounter your spirit. God, I personally ask for forgiveness and repent from the folly of not believing that you can change things, including me. God, remove that sense of pessimism and cynicism put by a fallen world. Remove that from our hearts and our minds. And let us to live in the optimistic hope that you can change things. That our problems, our world's problems, are not beyond you. For you, O oh God, are bigger than anything we could ever imagine. God, you created the world with your words, the universe. And you saved our soul by becoming man and dying for our sake. God, with that power, impact our lives again and change us. Let us be transformed by encountering you. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.